congratulations on area for your birthday slash other things well yeah i mean it's public knowledge now and by the time this thing comes out i've already started <laughs> that's true so congratulations on your new job at notre dame thank you so much chris i feel like i can finally be excited about it you can uh, be it's really I'm awesome happy. and well deserved thank you I, I don't know about the well deserved it never feels i do i will speak for you it is well deserved uh, but the one thing I think a lot of people don't know about that situation that makes it like extra special amazing is that my brother and sister-in-law also work at Notre Dame. And how often is it in academia that we get to live and work in the same place as our family? Yeah, no, I know that. And I think it's, again, well-deserved. It's awesome. I actually am looking forward to this now. Not to say actually as though we aren't usually, but... Mm. Sarah Lacey, who we're going to be talking to in just a second, I should let you introduce her, but it's one of your oldest friends, or at least from grad school days, yeah, right? so Sarah and I, we weren't from the same cohort. I think she was the cohort after me, the year after me. But yeah, so we've been friends since, oh, I guess 2008, so 11 years now. She was a bridesmaid in my wedding. Uh, we've known each other for a long time, and... Yeah, she's one of these like just very kind, super intelligent individuals that you're just always happy to have in your life. Her advisor was your sort of informal backup advisor. He was my adoptive advisor. Adoptive advisor, <laughs> yeah, Eric Trinkhouse. Yeah, so Eric Trinkhouse was officially her advisor and then Eric adopted me when um, Herman took another job. And uh, Sarah and I were both at, at the most recent meetings, that special session for Eric Trinkhouse, right. celebrating his, his career because he's retiring. And I met her through you, and it's not like I hung out with her a lot, but she's so easy to get along with. And mm -hmm. knowing her through you, I felt immediately comfortable with her. So, like, I text her now, well, not a lot, but, you know, <laughs> I mean... As much as I text anyone except for you and maybe two other people in the world, so. <laughs> and we have a group text going. We have a group text going and hung out with her a lot at the last meeting, so we she's very cool. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame together. We did, we did. And actually, Sarah, we haven't told you this, but Sarah and I are planning a music podcast together. Woo, that's a charm. Well, one of the articles she sent us is called Repoliticizing the Anthropologist in the Age of Neoliberalism and hashtag Black Lives Matter from Transforming Anthropology. And I am loving this article because it just... Yeah. A bit of context provided to some degree. So she and I went to Wash U in St. Louis. And anyone who has ever lived in St. Louis can tell you that the holdover from segregation is still very much there. The racial tension is still very much there. I ended up leaving St. Louis for my first job right before the Ferguson protests, like months before basically this, everything went down. Uh, and Sarah was still there during all of this and became a huge proponent of Black Lives Matter and a very important activist. And this article, I believe, is a direct response to that and then how higher ed has handled these exact kind of protests, whether they be in the adjacent city or on the exact campus. Yeah, I'm, I'm always impressed with her and her ability to not just be an activist, but also put words. I mean, she very eloquently talks about these things and very passionately talks about these things. There's another paper that she sent us too yeah. about Neanderthal children teeth. Let me read the title, except for the French part. The French Newly part. recognized human dental remains at, there's a French word there. I'm going to let her say it. Hi, Sarah. 
Anyway, uh, as we kind of already introduced you to some degree that you and I have been friends for like 11 years at this point, a long time. And I said I was going to tell a story from my wedding day because you were one of my bridesmaids and you were kind enough to do my makeup because I have no skill in that kind of thing at all. And while I believe you were doing my eyes, I noticed you missed a spot shaving under your arms. Waxing my underarms. Waxing. She missed a spot while waxing her underarms. And while she was doing my makeup, I took tweezers and cleaned up her armpit hair for her. (laughs) So that's the level of friendship that you get through this uh, podcast today. Chris cringed that whole time. How'd that feel, Sarah? <laughs> it, it made me feel really loved and cared for. It's like a primatological experience to share in primate grooming. All right. Oh my goodness. That's, That's fair. That's so you sent us two papers and they're very different, obviously, in, in what they cover as we kind of talked about in the intro. Do you have a preference in where you want to start? Whatever's more interesting to you. We should probably what? start where we normally start, right, Chris? Yeah, let's I, start with the stuff that. that everyone else in the world listening does not know that... <laughs> I already grilled Sarah on, you probably already knew. But tell us your origin story, Sarah. How did you get interested in anthropology? I mean, if I, the pictures of my two-year-old birthday party were dinosaur-themed. I mean, I, I used to, you know, one of those children that used big words and would tell people I wanted to be a paleontologist. And it evolved in maybe about third grade into archaeology. And for the longest time, my parents, like, they just kind of patted me on the head and were like, sure, that's fine. But then when I started applying to colleges, they were horrified. Like, oh, wait, that's not actually something that you can get a well-paying job in (laughs) and push me into something else. And so I was majoring in economics, but secretly still just double majoring in anthropology behind their back. And, (laughs) you know, eventually my mom got a job where she was actually hiring archaeologists and she called me and was like, isn't that strange? I didn't realize that, you know, there's actually this much work in archaeology. And I was like, well, I've been secretly doing it the whole time. Uh, So when I finished Tulane, I was able to go then pursue a graduate degree in anthropology as opposed to economics. Uh, So I certainly think that the economics training has helped me in a lot of ways, both just like day to day, like understanding the news, but also um, in the second paper that I sent you, that's a kind of a critique of academia. It's helped me to merge my interest in paleodemography and in human rights and take a, a broader view of how to analyze that and also probably radicalize me a little bit as well. You really were a double major and secretly hiding this from your family? Uh-huh. That is so cool. Covert anthropology. <laughs> and where are you now, Sarah? So now I've ended up in California. It's, it's wonderful. I'm at Cal State Dominguez Hills, and I live three blocks from the ocean, and life couldn't be better. And you also do roller derby, right? I do, and my roller derby name is Neanderthal. There we go. Nice. If you all haven't fallen in love with her yet, there's something wrong with you. Well, oh, I should add, she's got an Instagram page called Hot Hominins. She models hominins and fabulous clothes. And she may have a cave person tattoo on her arm. With pizza, right? Yes, he's in space yeah. hunting pizza. There we go. Since we mentioned cavemen and Neanderthals, uh, maybe tell us about the, the one paper you sent where we can't pronounce the French names and we don't want to butcher them, so we're leaving it to you. Oh, Les Fede? Less fede. That was much easier than it looked. I was going to do like lit. Never mind. I won't even. <laughs> All right. So um, in this paper, the site seems to have a really long history of people working there and doing excavation, but very little has actually been analyzed or written up. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about this site and, you know, the backstory as 
to why it's kind of not really published on. Before you do that, I think this sets up the same question. Can I, I just want to read her first sentence because I like it a lot. Or their first sentence because this is a co-authored piece with Shara Bailey. Uh-huh. And I don't have the first names of the other two, Benazi and Delage. Yeah, Christoph Delage and Stefano Benazi. The first sentence is, prehistoric archaeological assemblages cannot be used to identify the taxonomic affiliation of the humans who made them, and much ink has been spilled over the conflation of culture and biology. So you're taking a poke right out of the gate, I think. Yeah, I'll have to take credit for that sentence. And in some ways, it's like a, an homage to my PhD advisor, Eric Trinkus. I don't know how many times he's written on the board, culture does not equal biology, because it's a common habit in archaeology to be like, oh, look, we see some sort of new trend. We see a new kind of archaeological assemblage. It must be a new kind of people. And mm. acknowledging that culture doesn't just assign itself to uh, biologically distinct entities. So this paper is interesting in that, well, it reflects actually larger issues in archaeology in Europe, where if you're thinking about the Paleolithic, people are often occupying caves, and caves are really conspicuous on the landscape. And so you often get these amateur archaeologists who are like, well, I want to go look at something Mm -hmm. fun. The obvious place to go dig a hole is in a cave. And so these places have been excavated for hundreds of years often, I mean, at least the last 150, by people who are interested in prehistory and interested in archaeology, but don't have training in it. Mm. And also, of course, you know, the training has evolved quite a bit. I mean, even people who were very well regarded at their time aren't going to be documenting the stratigraphy and mapping these sites the way that someone excavating them today would. So we end up with these people going in, excavating, keeping things they think are cool in their own homes, right? In curio cabinets. If they do intend to publish on them, it sometimes takes like one of the papers in this, uh, that we cite took 25 years to be published. <laughs> you know, it makes me feel a little better about how slow <laughs> I am. <laughs> but, yeah, so you get into this issue of there's really important finds from these sites, but the documentation is unclear. And so that was really where I stepped in for this one because I had been in that museum back in 2012 and the curator at the time, Christophe Delage, who's co-author, had said, you know, someone last time they were here thought they saw some human teeth and I had a free afternoon. He's like, you want to look for them? And so I started pulling out through their drawers and just in a box that said carnivore teeth, there was four human teeth. Or were you just kind of going through everything or were you like, ooh, carnivore teeth, I want to look in that box. And then you're like, oh shit. These are human teeth. Well, that seemed like a logical place to look. I mean, like, you know, we are a medium-sized mammal. Mm. So I tend to look at things that are labeled medium-sized mammal. Because ah. <laughs> human bones, I mean, if they're fragmentary, they, they do get um, confused. Yeah. So it was just kind of like an obvious place to start. I mean, I think it took me like half an hour to find them. Hmm. Tisk tisk to the other people. <laughs> This is one of those quintessential stories, though, where I was just listening to a podcast yesterday where they were asking about this, and they're like, you know, experts in this field can just pick up a bone fragment and be like, here's a human tooth. That's you. Yeah, well, I mean, if you work, especially that was like my dissertation collection, all I was doing was looking at human teeth day in and day out. When I would lay in bed and close my eyes, I would see teeth. (laughs) You know, when when you're a hammer, everything's a nail, so it wasn't very hard to find them. (laughs) When you're a hammer, everything's a nail. Right on, okay. (laughs) So tell us about these teeth. So these are children's teeth. Let's see, one of them is actually a deciduous tooth or baby tooth. 
The other ones are, there's two adult teeth that don't have completely formed roots, and one is an adult teeth with a fully formed root, but very little wear, so hadn't been in the mouth for particularly long. The ages don't quite overlap that this is one individual. Mm. At first when I saw that, I got really excited that like, oh, maybe these will overlap, but then you know, putting it together, the data didn't quite work out that way. But these are children's teeth. Um, the site has the largest occupation as being Magdalenian, which is, you know, between 15 and 13,000 years ago, depending on when you're talking about like final Magdalenian, middle Magdalenian, we really get into the specifics of the uh, archeological designations for the differences between those different periods. But we just have very little human remains from the Magdalenian. We have tons of art, but very few remains. And even just generally in the Paleolithic, right? So 10,000 years ago to 2 million years ago, we have very few children's remains. Hmm. So this adds to a very small sample set. And we wanted to make sure, you know, we're not just, these weren't like some recent humans tooth who just happened to land in there. Hmm. We wanted to make sure that we went through and did size analysis and shape analysis to see if there's the possibility they were um, a more archaic homo, right? Because there was Neanderthal occupation at the site, but they very clearly are not Neanderthal teeth. They cluster strongly with Paleolithic modern humans. So there's a correction to our intro where we totally called them Neanderthal teeth. So everybody, um, we were wrong. They're not Neanderthals. Sorry. <laughs> we wanted them to be. And it I'm does sure. have a big cusp, which we do associate with Neanderthals, but also modern Euro Europeans. So what can we learn from these teeth? What do they tell us? I wish they told us something more exciting. Maybe they don't really qualify. <laughs> They're exciting because we just have so few of them. Mm. It's a very small sample set, especially for the Magdalenian. They, t they show us also that there's been very large population turnover in Europe since this period, people like to think that like they're looking at these upper Paleolithic modern human hunters and these are our ancestors. Mm. And there's been so many population turnovers in Europe that, you know, these teeth look like some, you know, some of these teeth look like people who live in West Africa today. <laughs> these teeth don't look like people who live in Europe today. And there's just very little genetic continuity on this continent. Mm. You know, Europe's a backwater. It's a cul-de-sac. Mm. We've lifted it up as being this most important place in human history especially because of like the eurocentrism of our history education mm -hmm. it, it isn't <laughs> it's kind of this corner of the world where people kept dying out and getting turned over and mm. you know. <laughs> it's a grim sight very I, grim but i think that's that's a great great point and one that is understated the only other person I've heard come out and say that to me, because I'm not a paleoanthropologist, I don't go to these, these talks, was when John Hawks was here talking about Neanderthals. This was before he was all about Denisovans. No, no, before Naledi. Anyway, I mean, when they were talking about Denisova, they were talking about Asia as the center for Neanderthal, basically history in that Europe had actually been a backwater. That way, genetically. That's just a kind of mind-blowing for, I think, most people for the reason that you state, which is that we're Eurocentric in our research designs, our theorizing, and how we teach and everything. So that's a really important point. And even just like the, the geopolitics of the last 200 years of Europe being a site where there were bored, wealthy people who could just go dig a hole in a cave. Mm -hmm. And so we have a long history of understanding the archaeology of that area and other parts that historically may have been really important places for human evolution. They're just not good places to dig a hole right now. Mm. As someone who's also worked in, I mean, <laughs> dig a hole, right? But as someone who's worked in Kenya doing um, excavations, uh, you know, we would love to go excavate in Uzbekistan 
that, right? But getting permits there is, is a whole other animal than it is to just going and working in France where I just have to call up a friend and I can get in somewhere. Mm. And I think this actually might be a really good segue into your other paper that, that mm. you sent us that's very different, but also highly related. Can I ask a yeah. quick question? Yeah. Speaking of rich people who could go dig a hole, so... Um, oh goodness, I'm so concerned where this is going. No, no, no. Just there's a, <laughs> there's a list of rich people who dug holes there. And so I'm wondering, it says in 1982-85, Jean Arvo had the opportunity to explore the cave system thoroughly, blah, 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 and basically sifted all the dirt that had piled up there over the years, people excavating. Is there... Is this, is this the person who found those? Is there any idea who found these teeth and dropped them off in the carnivore bucket? Yeah, that's, we suspect it was um, Arvo's excavation uh, because he was the only one who turned over everything to the museum and in a systematic mm. way. Mm. So it's, it's, it is from backfill most likely, though he also did some of his own excavations of in situ sediment deposits. Mm. But the box that just says carnivore teeth has no provenience other than assumedly coming from his excavation. Cool, cool. Okay. Now that I screwed up your elegant... You screwed up my amazing segue, Chris. I know. I know. Terrible. Right. You wrote a really wonderful critique of higher ed. And Chris and I did an intro before we brought you on where I gave a little bit of context that we were... You know, we both did grad school in St. Louis, and I ended up leaving right before the Ferguson protests basically broke out. Uh, but that racial tension and the hangovers of segregation are still incredibly present in that city. And I feel like this paper uh, was in part response to that. And so that context has been provided just a little bit, but perhaps you can go into a little bit greater detail about it. So this, this came out of the fact that, yeah, you know, we both finished our PhDs at the same time and you left, but strangely, incidentally enough, I got my first tenure track job in St. Louis at a different university, at University of Missouri, St. Louis. And so, you know, a week or two before I was supposed to start my first professorship ever, Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, and Ferguson forms part of the border of the campus. And so you have to actually exit into Ferguson to enter the campus, and my students were going to protest every night. They were getting tear gassed, right? And they also have a lot of stories about the exploitation of the police officers in the area. Like I would drive to school every day and never get pulled over. And I mean, it, it was every other week a student would walk in late to class and it was because they'd been pulled over. These tiny little towns, you know, they have like 700 people in them. Mm -hmm. And for some reason they have their own police force. And so the only way to fund themselves is to just basically shake down students <laughs> who are driving to school every day and, you know, are driving a little bit over the 25 mile an hour speed limit mm -hmm. on these local streets, which are, you know, they're speed traps. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't very difficult to convince them that, you know, they were being exploited by local police forces. Mm -hmm. um, so this came out of watching what was happening there. I'm teaching classes on race, so I can't not engage this. Like I, my teach, I teach human variation. How can I pretend that like this isn't happening? So I started getting involved in local protest movements. And after a number of years watching the, how the universities responded, how the universities treated me for being involved in protest movements. How did they treat you? Oh gosh, <laughs> they wanted nothing to do with it. I mean, they had told student groups that they couldn't go into Ferguson and do any like painting up um, boards over glass windows if they were going to be representing the university. Like they couldn't have University mm -hmm. of Missouri St. Louis t-shirts on or be representing Association of Black Collegiates. 
in B and Ferguson, right? Uh, and so, of course, I was getting in trouble relatively <laughs> regularly. I was not my dean's favorite person because uh, I'm being like interviewed on local news and things like that, and it doesn't make them look good from their perspective that a professor is being associated with this at all. Having prof professors look out for and protect people is not doesn't look good. Yeah, I know the it's like the ability to rationalize the non-engagement in these issues just it boggles my mind well, that's where this paper came from is kind of trying to figure out how do we have the state university which is basically in ferguson respond with we want nothing to do with it don't talk about it don't associate yourself and then we have the very wealthy private university which is not nearby right is a number of miles away and is literally shopping lists of its faculty members around to different news outlets saying like here are all these different specialists if you want to contact them to have be a talking head right because they have a very strong pr department at washington university and hearing people being interviewed as professors from washington university talking about oh we're just down the street our students are so involved we now have a scholarship program um, and grants for faculty members if they want to work in Ferguson, any Ferguson themed project we will fund, all these things. <laughs> and watching these, these kind of these two responses and thinking like, what is informing this? Where is this coming from? And yet um, Wash U was gentrifying their own local neighborhood, according to what you write. Yeah, and Kara is, I'm sure, familiar with this as well, that Washington University would give employees $7,500 towards a down payment of a house if they would buy a house in these four targeted neighborhoods that mm -hmm. they wanted to gentrify. I mean, they were pretty explicit about it. Like, these are the neighborhoods that we want to be nicer. The ones that are already full of white people, we won't give you money to buy a house there. So you have this really great and also disturbing line in your paper. So I'm going to read the quote. Uh, Although race has long been a dominant research theme, Anthropologists are rarely asked by administration to facilitate debate on the role of the academic setting in creating social and political change. It's true, and I feel like it's true across the board in most places. Uh, and I'm wondering why you think that is? Why do you think social scientists are left out of this conversation when really they have the most to contribute? Well, if this gets back to like Sarah Ahmed talking about non-performativity. And so she wrote a couple papers, but like the big non-performativity paper is arguing about how academics are tapped to do service and they're supposed to perform service, but the service should not actually accomplish what it's directed to do. And that's why she calls it non-performativity, right? So we have all these uh, diversity, equity, inclusion task force, but we don't want them to actually change anything on campus. They need to be seen doing something, but accomplish nothing. And so I think that's partially why social scientists are often not included, right? Because they, <laughs> they, they actually have done the research to know what are the programs that would work. Mm -hmm. And there's also a bit of a tension between arts and humanities versus social science. And you have things, you know, Chicano studies departments, black studies departments are very much rooted in humanities. And so they seem like these obvious people to tap and therefore anthropology and these other social sciences are not being included in that discussion often because they're in different colleges or social scientists think they're a little better, right? Mm. They're like, oh, well, we're actually scientists. We do real work. And there's a bit of that as well. Mm -hmm. we, get, we have a chip on our shoulder because the natural scientists call us soft science. So we have to pick on the humanities. <laughs> and I'm absolutely that has that happen to me all the time where I'm on campus and people will be like, oh, well, no, that program is for people who do research that's in any way related to uh, healthcare fields. And I was like, I study oral health. How am I not in a healthcare field? I'm like, oh. <laughs> I have to like convince people that what I do is, has relevance to human health. I was going to hone in on the same part with a different quote, um, but I think you, you nailed it. You cover two case studies 
in this paper. And I was wondering if you could briefly walk us through those case studies and, you know, kind of what they tell us about this situation. Well, since I'm now like at a state university, I guess I'm watching more the constraints that are on um, public higher education. So, I mean, I'll talk about University of Missouri, St. Louis, because it was also much more embedded there to talk about what happened. But the university definitely saw what was happening in Ferguson as a, a chance for them to just lose more money, right? In, mm. in the current situation in the United States, all but two states have decreased per student funding of higher education below 2008 levels. And some of those states have like it decreased it by more than 40%, which is Arizona and Louisiana. So Missouri is kind of in the middle um, of that decrease. And it was con really concerned about being affiliated with any way, especially the fact that we had a, re a Republican controlled um, mm. state house. So they would turn off the lights that said the name of the university, these big neon lights at night, because they would be in the background of photos of the protests. Because it's, I mean, like, Ferguson mm -hmm. is absolutely adjacent to the campus. They scrubbed any mention of Ferguson from the university's website. Mm. So, like, there's like a little old town Ferguson, and we had a little shuttle that would go there for lunch. It's like a cute little trolley thing you could take down there. Um, all the descriptions that were removed because it's referencing how adjacent we are to Ferguson. And then there was just a page on the bottom that said safety, this link on the homepage that said safety, and you clicked it, it talked about how safe your children will be on this campus. <laughs> without actually naming, you know, the the menace that they're referencing. Yeah. Which is, you know, oh gosh, people of color being upset about their treatment. So I was, you know, watching this and what ended up happening is the we had more problems at the the system level, the main campus in Columbia, and they did come in and name a new vice provost or or vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And what did the state house do in Missouri? They went through and they slashed the university's budget by the amount of his salary. Wow. Wow. They, if that isn't like a directed attack, I don't know what is. That's well, they're very clear about it. They said, mm -hmm. we do not need this person. So this man has now been hired, moves to Columbia, Missouri to take on this position and, and supervise a system that's now had multiple racist incidents occur on campus because um, of the things that were happening at Columbia where black students were being regularly harassed. And then now his, you know, the, the system's budget's being cut by specifically the amount of his salary. <laughs> And so, I mean, the university maybe was right in being nervous about losing money and seeing this as a way to just have their, their budget further undercut. But I think mm -hmm. that kind of defensive attitude doesn't mm -hmm. do your students any justice. It doesn't serve the mission of the university. Why aren't we fighting for more funding and mm -hmm. justifying that funding to the public? I hate talking about taxpayers, but I mean, that's, that's ultimately, that's the kind of rhetoric that's used. And we wouldn't, we are so silent about in completely just total like what was it even denial it was non-denial it was we spoke nothing about our affiliation with what was happening in ferguson even though michael brown's cousin was a student um, on campus and so now being here in in california where i'm also now at a state university system at california state i'm very cognizant of the rhetoric around how government money is being used and how we're serving taxpayers and well like in the same thing was happening in missouri right freezing tuition and saying like the state freezes tuition and they're doing this on behalf of the people but then cutting funding to the, the system mm -hmm. we can't make it up now so what are we supposed to do which is you know not hire and so i mean i don't want to put you on the spot with it because you can't have all the answers because not one person does but say you were the provost or president of University of Missouri, St. Louis. I mean, 
what kind of is a blueprint in your mind for a response to this kind of activism and, you know, obvious and necessary civil unrest that was going on? Uh, I think, you know, talking to the campus community, like you actually care what's happening to them when they leave the campus. What? <laughs> Acknowledging things? What? No. Right? Just like some minimal things like that. But also, you know, Wash U had no problem going on the PR tour about mm. their affiliation with Ferguson and using that as a way to get students. I was at Tulane before and after Hurricane Katrina. And Tulane absolutely used Hurricane Katrina to their benefit. They did a big PR stunt and they attracted students who had social justice interests and said, come to Tulane, help rebuild this city. We have all these programs about lifting up people in uh, this local area about documenting their culture, you know, if you're interested in architecture, if you're interested in food, all these different things, and really made this huge push, right, for social justice as part of the university education, even though to my mind, it's a little bit token, it was still like a, a smart move on their part, and they got their student numbers up. Mm -hmm. And so instead of taking a really proactive position and saying like these these people on, out protesting are our students, we support them, we support what happens to them off campus, we support them when they have to interact with the police, they, they just said nothing. Hmm. Yeah. Was this the beginning of your involvement? Because I know you've done more, been asked to do more in local politics. Has this sort of uh, shifted your gears as an anthropologist in, in, in any way? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly had, I mean, a relatively leftist radical view of the world before this, but this is very much what drove, pulled me into local politics in St. Louis. And I had actually gone to the point where I was like, if I don't leave St. Louis, I'm going to just stay here and, and run for office. That's interesting. Yeah, I was like planning for running for alderwoman. Going out of the job market was like, that was kind of like the last year. I was like, if I don't find something this year, I'm just, I'm going to be resigned to the fact that I'm staying in St. Louis. And maybe also open to the fact that I might be denied tenure on this campus because yeah. I've been a thorn in the side of the administration. Um, and that, you know, I might have a second career in politics. So I've got to say that like anthropologist or anthropology activism is much more common. And like you said, it's non-performative service kind of thing. Uh, and it also takes a huge toll on one's time and, you know, mental energy. Do you have any words of wisdom for the anthropology activists that we have throughout the field, especially the younger generations that are either in grad school or very early on? Or the anthropology older women. Well, I think like writing this paper, this was an attempt to say, you know, I'm spending all my time on this. Let me go ahead and also have it count towards my mm. tenure clock, right? right? I'm gonna go ahead and get an academic peer reviewed publication out of this. Also, I mean, because my interests are so heavily focused on getting students who are underrepresented in anthropology into graduate programs, like this gives me credibility with them, but it's also helped shape me that that's my passion now, right? So mm. even being in a new campus, I'm constantly taking students to conferences. The whole point is to give them lots of like hands-on management to get them into graduate programs because a lot of them are first-generation college students. They're not getting advice anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And and I think as we all know, like if we think about our own, our own origin stories in anthropology, so much of it was someone making a phone call on our behalf or introducing us to someone important or getting us into that museum that's really hard to get into. Mm. And so those are the sort of things that they don't have. That's a network they don't have. Right? And so I'm giving up a lot of my time to be that person, which makes it really difficult to have time for, you know, I don't have graduate students, um, makes it difficult to make time to do research. So finding ways in which you overlap with the activism that you can still bring it back to your academic life, mm -hmm. but also finding 
people who are tenured, who have your back, who see the value in what you're doing and cultivating them as advocates of yours. Nice. And in my current campus, that was not difficult at all. I mean, I'm very happy here. Mm-hmm. And even as soon as I got here, they knew already about the activism I had been doing at my old campus. And I was immediately named to like the committee to diversify the faculty my first year. Oh, you're on that committee. Yes, I am on that committee, though. Unfortunately, uh, is- there's a lot of non-performativity. <laughs> so you are one of the more active anthropologists culturally in terms of media, in terms of things like that. I was wondering if you could just really briefly tell us about some of the things that you do in that neck of the woods? Yeah, I think outreach is really fun, right? And I happen to live in Los Angeles, right? So I should might as well just take advantage of that proximity and, you know, put myself out there to be interviewed on the news and to be tapped as a, you know, a specialist to come consult on a movie that has relevance for my work. And that's part of where like the Instagram account Hot Hominids came from was students constantly being like, your outfits are amazing. You need to have an outfit of the day Instagram. (laughs) And I was like, well, that's a little frivolous. Like, let's make it, (laughs) once again, let's loop it back around. Let's like have this, you know, promote my career as opposed to just like, look how (laughs) I am. Uh, And so just trying out different things with that, you know, posting different kinds of um, information about different fossils or stone tools, seeing which ones engage people the most. I mean, it's, it's moved a little bit more just to documenting what I'm doing in the lab in general. Mm. That has helped. I mean, that's how I got contacted by NBC to be interviewed, right? Is having like a very outward facing media presence and recognizing that like they want someone who like looks fun. (laughs) Outgoing personalities are really important. And scientists have this, I mean, baggage, this stereotypical baggage that we aren't outgoing and we can't have fun and have these kinds of easygoing conversations. And so putting yourself out there and doing that is, you know, changing the face of the field as well, not just yourself. So thank you. Anyway, so what do you do for fun outside of your activism and doing your amazing research? Well, I actually really like to sew. And I sew a lot of my own clothes and then sell clothes on the internet. So I do have a little side gig with my vintage clothing. Do you have an Uh, Etsy page? I don't do Etsy. I'm about to start an Etsy. I've been pulling, there's a whole like rack of clothes in my in my apartment that's sitting there ready to go on Etsy. Oh. So I was thinking of like rebranding myself because everything's been under Dirty Dirty Retro coming from living in New Orleans, the Dirty Dirty. But like Dirty Dirty sounds like you're talking about clothes. People don't want to think about dirty and clothes. So I think maybe we might might rebrand. Uh, and I'm trying to think what else. I guess I go to like a lot of concerts because living in LA makes it so easy. And roller derby. And I do love me some some roller skating and leopard print. We, we just said, uh, so Sarah, I told Kara and everyone that you and I are starting a music podcast, which I'll also be getting back to you about. I haven't forgotten. Um, <laughs> and we just asked our last guest what two songs he would have on his current mixtape. And this is, I stole this from CNN this morning. What two songs are on your mixtape today? Ooh, today. Oh, gosh. Or the past week. It doesn't have to just be today. I guess, so I I really like Little Dragon recently. I used to think that they were overhyped, but now I'm like really into Little Dragon, which is funny because I saw them like over a year ago. So I'm feeling them right now. So I'm thinking the song like After the Rain, maybe. What else have I been listening to? Can I just admit like a total like super guilty pleasure? Yes. Absolutely. Secret band. Okay. I got, I couldn't stop listening to the Britney Spears song Womanizer last week. <laughs> Sarah, I adore you so much. <laughs> I really do. 
And I think we we just covered everything about how to promote you, but is there any other way people could or should get a hold of you? Instagram's probably the main one. I know I haven't engaged Twitter that much. I mean, I have a Twitter, but it doesn't get used a whole lot because Instagram's just been more fun as far as connecting to my students. It's like they're a little bit more on there. Maybe I need to learn how to use Snapchat, but... <laughs> um, what about and- you, Kara? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Kara Akabak. And you, Chris? I am also twittering at Chris underscore L-Y. Kara, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was really wonderful talking to you. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me. We have been the Sausage of Science. Um, You should subscribe to us. You should like us. You should do all the things. And share us with all your friends and family. And until we get another producer, it'll be two weeks before you hear our voices again. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Sarah.